with me, if you would, while we hear the word of the Lord, if you're able. Sorry. Today's sermon and reading come from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you may be seated. and um, we'll, we'll pray just a moment before Nick joins us. Um, Lord, it's hard to say that any, any portion of your word is better than the next, but it's hard to refrain from uh, joyously exclaiming when we, when we read these words. Lord, I just pray that your presence would be felt among us. Your spirit would be mighty in our midst, this covenant people whom you have gathered in your name to worship and glorify you. Guide our worship this morning. Help us, Lord, to be attentive, uh, bend our ears to hear your word, and soften our hearts that we would understand and receive your word. Um, I pray that your spirit would be with, with Nick mightily, and that your word would be proclaimed joyously and boldly. And we thank you that we can sit at your feet this morning. In Christ's name, amen. There we go. Okay. Thank you, Logan. I don't know how you guys spent your day yesterday, but I spent my day at a marathon. Not actually running the marathon, but I participated. I viewed it. I was a spectator. And I was really amazed by a couple of different things that were going on. First, I'd never seen something. I've never participated or really spectated. Something of that kind of nature. All those people there. And every single, you know, you had thousands of people in one place. The, they were set off in waves to run this race. And at every single mile, there were people with water, with gummy bears, with candy, waiting and cheering these runners on. And they were just, everyone was just so encouraging to everyone. And my wife, actually, it was her first marathon, and she had a sticker on her that said, this is my first marathon. And what people would do is they would be watching for that, and they would be cheering everyone on, and all of a sudden they would notice that sticker, and they would say, 
hey, it's your first marathon, way to go, keep going. And it was, it was really striking to me just at the encouragement, the unity of everyone towards this one goal to win this race. And it really does, I think, capture what Paul is calling people to do, what he's calling really his church to do. Because look at our text that we just read, verses 5 through 11, are coming right off the heels of, obviously, 1 through 4 of chapter 2, where he calls his listeners to complete his joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And it was just so striking at how everyone was encouraging these people to run this race and how they weren't looking after their own interests, but they were looking after the interests of their neighbor. But in our text today, like like John said, we have an even greater display of this type of humility, this type of other-focusedness, this type of not looking out for your self-interest, but looking out for the interest of others. Really, we have the ultimate display of this in Christ. And what we see here, really, what the pinnacle that we're getting to in our text today is looking at the divine majesty of Jesus. That's what we're going to be looking at, and that's actually what I've titled the sermon, is the divine majesty of Jesus. And we're going to look at that in three parts. We're going to see where he started from, how high he started from when he stepped down. We're going to look at how low he went, and then we're going to see to the great extent that which he was brought up to. But before we do that, we need to have this proper mindset that we're talking about right now. This mindset of humility. Verse 5. He says, have this, Paul says, have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The this mind, you might think, is what's the text right afterwards, verses 6 through 11. But the this mind is actually picking up on those first four verses. In verse 2, it's actually repeated twice. The same word mind there is said that, there, these, that this, these Christians are supposed to have this same mind among themselves, unity. And then they are to have one mind. And what we learn in verse 5 is that this mind that they're to have, this unity that they're to have, this mindset is actually the mind of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that chapter ends with saying that we understand spiritual things because we have been given the mind of Christ. That in Romans chapter 12, we're told to consider ourselves to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Before Paul gets into explaining and expounding upon the divine majesty of Jesus, he starts off with a command to think like Christ, to have Christ's mind. That's how he starts off. He starts off with a command. He's kind of flip-flopping what he usually does. Paul usually says, this is what Christ has done for you, therefore go and do this. And he's flipping it for the effect. He says, have this mind, the mind of Christ, this, because what's required of the church is unity. That unity is to be lived out, and how it actually works is because people are humble, looking out for others' self-interest, And he says, therefore, have this mind, which Christ had. It's the mind of Christ that we're given. It's, this is the frame from which we're to understand the preceding text, or the the text that's coming up next. So as we're talking about the divine majesty of Jesus, let this drama, let this image, let this song remind you, affect you, Affect your own affections and your own perception of yourself and others. You know, there's a lot of pressure on pastors to preach practically. I don't know if you guys know that, but I've, I've really seen it for right now at this point since I haven't been preaching very long. But I've seen, a pra- uh, seen the pressure on pastors to preach practically. And what I mean by that is not that they want their pastors to address the issues of their day, which is good, they should do, but more of the pressure of wanting the pastor to instruct them and focus on their sermons, on the nature of the Christian life. They want to know how to live, how to have better marriages, how to have more obedient children. That's usually the pressure on pastors to focus in preaching in that way. But we don't get that in Paul. What we get here in Paul is, Paul is going to be talking about, like John said, one of the most magnificent realities, the nature of the incarnation, how God became a man, how Jesus is fully God and fully man, how the Trinity operates, and how the God the Father wants to glorify the Son, and the Son wants to glorify the Father. These are the most incomprehensible theological truths about the nature of God, and Paul uses it for a practical purpose. He uses it for a practical purpose. See, the thing is, is when we focus on the Christian life instead of on our God, when preaching becomes more about how to live and not what has been done for you, we're messing up that order, and we actually end up losing both things. Because the nature of the Christian life is we are living out of gratitude for all that God has done. For bringing us into union with Christ. This is a principle throughout Paul's letters. He calls Christians that they are in Christ, that they are one with him. And out of that oneness with him, having the mind of Christ leads to imitating Jesus leads to living like Jesus. So what does Jesus look like? How did Jesus live? What is 
this mind of humility look like in the God of the universe? What does this mind look like that's a humble, that's not other-focused? How does this look like, and how is this demonstrated in Jesus? Well, it ends up being a revelation of Jesus' divine majesty. But in order to understand Jesus' divine majesty and see how this works, you have to start off from where did Jesus start from? If I told you yesterday that um, you should be proud of me, I ran yesterday, that's not really that impressive. People run every day. But if I told you I ran 26.2 miles yesterday, which I did not, to clarify, if I told you I'd done that, then that would be something to be impressed by. So why should we, why should you be impressed by Jesus's humility? Well, let's look down at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice there the word form. Word form here that he uses, morphe, like morphology or like a, a, a bird, uh, not bird, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, not a bird. That's a transformation. That word form is the same word there where we get that, a transformation. What form did Jesus have right here who, though he was in the form of God, what form did Jesus possess? He had the form of God. This is John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word form here talks about nature and outward appearance. What's the form of a king? A crown on his head, a scepter in his hand, a robe, an elegant robe around him. Jesus had that outward form and appearance of God before he was, before he took on his human nature. But you know, if I just grabbed a crown and put it on my head, and I put on a robe and grabbed a scepter, it wouldn't make me king. No, because my nature is not the king of Britain or whatever nation. Just because I wear the outward form does not make it my identity. And that's why he uses a word here that Paul does not use in any of his other letters. He does not use the word morphe to talk about form. And he does it to communicate the fact that Jesus was, before his birth, had the outward appearance and the very identity of God himself. That's what makes him stooping down to save us so great. How high from which did he step when he stepped down to save us? He stepped down and breached an infinite chasm. Because there's an infinite difference between the God of the universe and the creature. And as we go through this and talk about the divine majesty of Jesus, this is the divine majesty that he had before his birth.
when we think about this, when we think about Jesus' divine majesty, I told you that we need to be considering our own selves during this because that's the point and why Paul is sharing this information. He wants this to transform your own affections and your own perceptions of yourself and others. So just how great do we think that we are? However you measure a man, whether it's by his character or by his appearance or by his athletic ability or by his intelligence or by his achievements, what college you'll go to, what job you have, However you measure a man, they don't measure up to God. And what does Jesus do with the infinite privilege that he had, the infinite power, the infinite majesty that he had? Well, he didn't count it something to be grasped. That's another interesting word, and this section's full of interesting words because this is a poem. Paul doesn't write in the same style here as he writes in the rest of his writing, which has caused a lot of people to think that this is actually a hymn or a song, which makes sense to me in the way that it's structured. Even the the thing that was most convincing to me was the very first word is the start of a lot of different songs. So he says, though, that it's not a thing to be grasped. At first, what I thought is what it meant to be grasped is like, I grasped this water bottle. I'm holding it. He didn't think that equality with God was something in our comprehension, being able to hold. But that's not really the point that he's trying to make here. Really, it's talking about using for your own advantage. The word there is talking about seized. It's what rulers do when they seize power. It's what rulers do when they're in positions of authority and they use it to crush the people beneath them or to get what they want. Or when a father abuses authority in the home and thinks that him snapping his fingers because he's dad means that everyone needs to listen and obey immediately in a way that is more abusive of that authority. No, this is not a thing to be grasped. He uses the point here is that Jesus does not use his privilege of being the eternal son of God over the universe to be used for his own advantage. What does Jesus use his privilege, his authority to do? He uses it to serve others. You know, if you think you're too good to wash toilets for a living, or you think you're too good, you know, to run a marathon, or you think you're too good or not good enough to run a marathon, I guess. But if you, whatever you think of yourself and your self-worth, if anyone actually had the claim to say, I'm too good for that, that task, that job, to serve that person who makes me feel uncomfortable when I'm around them. If anyone had the claim to do that, it would be Jesus Christ. And he didn't. What do you think that says about you? If we're not too good, if Jesus was not too good to serve others and to count others as more important than himself, remember verse three, 
then you're not given that privilege either. Instead, you've been given Christ's mind and you know how he acts and you need to imitate him. Well, it's one thing to talk about Jesus and where he started from and how low he had to drop. But how low did he go? What was the extent of that drop? How far did he stoop to save? Starting in verse 7. But he made himself nothing. Well, how did he make himself nothing? By taking the form of a servant, or the word there, or of a slave. He, this is the second time Paul uses the word morph, morphe, or form. The first one being the form of God. Now he's taking on the form of a slave. Jesus' outward appearance and the nature that he took when he took on human nature, he took on the form of a slave. Jesus, this is John chapter 13. Jesus, you know, you think about the master and all the disciples are arguing about who is greater. And then Jesus, before the Lord's Supper in John chapter 13, he washes his disciples' feet. You know how nasty feet were in the ancient world, let alone today? Feet are gross. And if you walk in sandals all the time, you're collecting dirt. It gets even nastier. So what you would do when you walked into someone's home is you had to wash your feet because you didn't want to dirty up someone's home. And Jesus took on that role. And when Jesus took on that role in John chapter 13, he was, that was not even the lowest that he would go. He ended up dying on the cross for wretched sinners. So he took on the form, the outward appearance and the very nature of, in its human nature, the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus in his outward appearance, Jesus in his very nature, was just like me and you. We're talking about the incarnation here. When Jesus became a man, what did that look like? Well, his divine glory was veiled. You couldn't see by looking at Jesus that he was different from me and you. But he was. He was the unique son of God taking on a human nature. Jesus' bones were breakable. Hence why the Roman guard, when they came up to him, they debated about breaking his legs, but he ended up already being dead. Jesus's body would get hungry. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus got tired. The son of God, when he was made man, he was made a man just like me and you, but one significant difference. He didn't have a sin nature. Because he didn't have Adam as his father, he had Mary as his mother, but he didn't have Adam as his father, he had God as his father. So he didn't inherit the guilt and corruption of the guilt of Adam, and yet he still subjected himself to all the things that we go through, decay, pain. He lived a life a human life 
that was filled with pain, sorrow, and rejection. All in the service of others. But we get lower because, verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, when he took on his human nature, he did not just become a normal human, a king maybe, but he took on the nature of a slave. And when Jesus humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, dying on the cross. I'm sure you know this already, but the death, death on a cross was something only reserved for two classes of people in the Roman world, to slaves and to criminals. Not just any criminals, but really like terrorists. Because this was supposed to be the most oppressive, the most shame-inducing type of death And it was supposed to be the type of death, the death on the cross, that was done in a public place to show everyone around you, if you do whatever he did, this is what's going to happen to you. You'll be naked. You'll be tortured. You'll be hosted up on a cross to the world to look at your shame. That's the type of death Jesus died. Unless I forget and just pass over it, that word that Jesus made himself nothing in verse 7. That Jesus, what does that mean? What did Jesus do when he made himself nothing? He took, he, he made himself nothing relative to the fact of what he had before. Before he had divine glory. Before he was in the presence of God being worshipped by angels. And when he became a man, he veiled that to where you couldn't see that by looking at him. The word there is talking about emptied. But the question that people have and the reason why it's formed here made himself nothing is it's kind of interpreting that. What does it mean that Jesus made, that emptied himself? What did he empty himself of? Well, when Jesus took on his human nature... He didn't do it by subtraction. When Jesus was walking around, it wasn't just Jesus and his human nature that was walking around, but it was the God-man that they were looking at. The incarnation, Jesus becoming a human being was not done by subtraction, but it was by, done by addition. God in his nature is unchangeable, immutable. From beginning to end, Jesus is the same forever. Why? Because as the Son of God, he has never changed. What happened in the incarnation is Jesus added to himself a human nature. And the type of human nature he had was one of a slave and one out of service to others. Went so far in his obedience that he went to the cross he died a shameful death. This is what 1 Timothy 1.15 says this is the good news, the summary of the good news, is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. 
And we're starting to get here the picture that Paul's painting, right, in this song. What's the divine glory look like? The divine glory of Jesus. He starts off from the highest possible high, and he's stepping down to the most shameful, wretched circumstance, all for the interest of others. He does it to save sinners like me and you. We might be able to deceive ourselves in our own self-worth and our own greatness at times, but there's no deceiving God. Jesus, who actually was righteous, actually was the most significant thing in the universe, made himself insignificant, made himself a nobody born in a nobody nowhere town to save sinners. Isn't that amazing? Paul doesn't stop here, though. He then goes and he shifts the entire text to talk about Jesus and his exaltation, looking at how Jesus has done all this before. Jesus has willingly humbled himself, verse 7. He, he made himself nothing, voluntarily choosing to save us. Verse 8, he humbled himself again, choosing to die for sinners, which we could just sit there for a second, thinking about Jesus and his willingness to save But in verse 9, we have a change in actor. Verse 9 starts off, therefore God highly exalted him. Verse 10, Jesus is given a name. By who? From who? From God the Father. In verse 11, that he's done all this to the glory of the Father. What happens in verse 9 is there's this pivot, this change to where God the Father is raising up Jesus. And he's bringing him to heights, the highest possible high. What we see here just in those, just as a quick note, is that God the Father is also not about serving himself merely. Here he lifts up the Son, Here he exalts him. Here he does something really interesting that we're going to look at in a second. He is bringing glory to Jesus. He's he's glorifying Jesus. Here here we have just a quick glimpse at the inter-Trinitarian relationship where Jesus is all about living for the glory of the Father. And the Father is all about glorifying his Son And how the Father glorifies His Son is with the help, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. See this self-sacrificial nature, this self-sacrificial lifestyle behavior mindset is something that we see in God Himself. We see in God Himself this other-focused And you know what God is all focused about, and this is something maybe hard to get our mind around, is glorifying himself. We say that that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, what's what's God's chief task? It's to glorify himself. And we might look at that and say, hey, that's something 
that seems to me selfish and conceited, aren't we called not to be conceited? Well, when you understand this, that the Father's task is also to glorify the Son, the Son to glorify the Father, and the Holy Spirit to glorify them both, you see that this is, God is about himself, yes, but it's not done in a self-conceited way. It's actually done in an inter-Trinitarian way that's really, I don't know about you guys, but beyond my mind's ability to possibly grasp. And I think Piper, John Piper actually helps me just to think about this, that when you think about God glorifying himself, God is the greatest thing in the universe. For God to be directed at glorifying and honoring anyone else would actually be idolatry. And the way that God glorifies himself is not done in our own selfish, conceited way. We glorify ourselves because we think that we're greater than we actually are when we're sinners. And yet, when God glorifies himself, it's because he actually is the greatest thing in the universe. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, talking about Jesus, the name that is above every name. What name is he referring to here? How is God, how high, we're seeing how high God is, the Father is lifting up Jesus, exalting him. How high does he put him? Well, he gives him the name that is above every name. What name is that? We might think that it's Jesus because it's at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. They're confessing Jesus Christ. But what are they bowing to? What are they, what are they confessing Jesus as? Well, they're bowing to and confessing Jesus as the thing here that's given to him. The fact that he's been given the name Lord. The fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word there, kurios, sure you've heard this before. Throughout the Old Testament, Greek speakers had a Greek Bible. Go figure with that. We have an English Bible. They had a Greek Bible. Whenever you saw God's name in the Old Testament, you saw the name Kyrios, Lord, because they w- did not want to speak his name. They gave that modifier there, that, that um, kind of like a euphemism, that this is his name under there. It's Lord. And where he's picking up from, I don't know about you guys, but my ESV doesn't have anything to show that he's actually quoting the Old Testament in verses 10 and 11. We actually see Paul picking up the words of Isaiah 45, specifically verse 23. He gives us a partial quotation here of that verse. And it's important to see that that whole chapter we don't have time to read it but let me just give you a partial quotation and a partial quotation of the whole chapter since paul gave a partial quotation of one verse in isaiah chapter 45 god says i am the lord i am curious and there is none else there is no other god besides me he says later on 
He says also, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He also says, I have sworn by myself that he will do it. And God swears by himself because there's no other name greater than his name that he could swear by that he will do it. And what does he swear? That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance to me. It is absolutely unmistakable that in Isaiah 45, it's God speaking there. And Paul is using this reference that every knee shall bow to make it about Jesus. Think about something for a second. Why would a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, that confessed every day, I am that uh, Deuteronomy 6, 1, that uh, the Shema, that listen, Israel, the Lord, your God, uh, I am the Lord, your God. Um, the Lord, there is no other. The Lord is one. I butchered that. He, the Shema says that there's only one true God. There is no other in heaven. He says, I'm one. And to think, what would make Paul, someone who confessed this every morning, say that Jesus is Lord? Well, it's because of his resurrection. When Jesus was rose from the dead, this is Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that in the flesh he was the son of David, according to the flesh. But Jesus was declared to be the son of God in the resurrection. That in Jesus' resurrection, everything he had said about himself was confirmed. Everything that happened to him afterwards affirmed the fact, too, that he was the son of God. Jesus rose, and where did he sit? Oh, yeah, he sat at the right hand of God the Father, on the throne of God. What was given to Jesus in his resurrection? Well, we have in verse 10, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Sounds an awful lot like Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. All authority has been given to me, on earth, in the heavens and in, on earth. This is what we're talking about here. That Jesus now, in his humanity, has been exalted. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was being given in his, now as the God-man, the glory that he had before time began. You know, this is an answer to a certain prayer that happened. Turn with me to John chapter 17. We're just going to read a couple verses here in John chapter 17. And I want you to keep these verses in mind the next time someone from the Watchtower Society 
comes to your door. Jehovah Witness, right? Next time you have some Jehovah Witnesses who come to your door, keep these verses in mind. Starting at verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour here is being spoke of is his crucifixion. Glorify your son and the son uh, that the son may glorify you. Philippians 2.11 ended with that Jesus has been given this name, everyone bowing to him, everyone confessing that he is God in essence, that this is done to the glory of the Father. Isn't that what Jesus prayed for? Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Isn't that what John said in John chapter 1, verse 1? Skip down to verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, talking about his disciples and the gospel message going out into the world. He's praying for his disciples here in this prayer in John chapter 17. He's praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me and me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So, for the Watchtower Society, start off in Isaiah chapter 45, read that chapter with them and say, who is this talking about? Oh, it's talking about God, and there is no other. Then turn, you know, turn your Bible to Philippians chapter 2, read that psalm, and focus on verses 10 and 11. Say, who is this talking about? Oh, it's talking about Jesus again. And they say, you know... Jesus knew about this. Look how Jesus talks about the God, him glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying him. John chapter 17. You know, you could do this with also Joel chapter 3, uh, verse 5. is quoted the same exact way in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Isaiah 45, 23 is quoted here. And Isaiah 8, 3 is quoted in 1 Peter 3, 15. This is this kind of thinking, this, this innate assumption that Jesus Christ has not only called himself God and de is declared to be the Son of God, but is identified to be the same person, the same God, rather, as the God in the Old Testament. This assumption sprinkled throughout the entire New Testament, where it's just the inbuilt assumption of the gospel writers. 
Are you getting a hint at Jesus's divine majesty yet? Can you believe that this God came into this world to die to save sinners like you and me? The infinite became finite. The God of the entire universe became a man, and not only that, but a a man who was poor in this world. He chose to be born in the first century and not the 21st century. Things would have been a lot more comfortable if he had come right now, wouldn't it? Jesus went through all that because he loved his people and he loved his father. And as Chrysostom said, that I think was helpful, that a person can only be lowly-minded if he humbles himself, if he does it out of willingness. If not, he is lowly only by necessity. This is the God we worship. This is the mindset that we are to have. Well, what should this do in us? Well, probably the first thing an intelligent Christian who's reading this with understanding should do is to bow their face pretty low to the ground, right? To humble ourselves before the God of glory and worship him and serve him. If Jesus lived for the Father's glory and we call ourselves Christians, we need to think the same way. Second, consider that the fact that God did not require, the Son did not require uh, using his power for self-serving motivations. Jesus had a unique authority and he was given a unique task, but we're called to have the same mindset. Let me ask you, in your home, in your workplace, in our church, when you're tempted to throw your weight around and to pull rank on other people, ponder the wonder of Christ who when he was in a position of authority, used it for the benefit of others. This is the reason why he's telling us, Paul's giving us this hymn in this song, is to change the way we relate to other people. Finally, we need to be humbled and transformed. We need to see that his spirit is teaching us an unexpected lesson that our highest privilege lies in reflecting our triune God, self-giving, self-giving and love towards other people. I'm going to quote John Piper one more time. He defines glorifying as this, if you don't know good definition for glorifying. We don't really use it too often. He says, glorifying means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect God's greatness that makes much of God, that gives evidence of the supreme greatness of all his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. If we can actually catch this vision of Jesus, we won't be able to help ourselves but glorify him. And when we are notice that we are in union with him, we're going to imitate him. We're going to live like him in this self, in this other, I keep saying self, this other focused love.
That's what it should do in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for revealing to us in this text one of the most beautiful demonstrations and pictures of the divine majesty of Jesus. I pray that our hearts would be right now filled with awe and wonder, but that our awe and wonder would not just stop in our minds, that we, this awe and wonder of the glory of Jesus and his greatness would lead to our own imitation in our lives. Lord, we know that Jesus prayed that God would give him the glory that he had before the foundations of the earth, but can't help but notice that also in John chapter 17, we heard him pray that his people would have the same mind among them, that they would be one even as Jesus is one with the Father. Lord, I pray that Jesus' prayer would be answered in our lives, not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit, not thinking that we are worthy enough to merit and earn your salvation, for we know we cannot. We know that with men that this is impossible. In our own strength, this is impossible. Lord, help us live not thinking that we can earn your grace, but live out of gratitude for all that Jesus did because he did so much in stepping down even to the point of death. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.